Welcome everyone to episode 14 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. The literature of a region can play a large role in forming an area's culture and how outsiders perceive it. It provides a written record for the present and the future. From expatalachians.com, this story is called The Kentucky Bookstore Keeping Regional Literature Alive. In Ashland, Kentucky, one bookstore carries the torch of regional literature on its own. The Jesse Stewart Foundation Bookstore was established in 1979 to preserve the eponymous writer's literary legacy. It has expanded beyond a focus on Stewart to publishing other regional writers, past and present, such as Harry Caudell, Alan Eckert, and Billy C. Clark. Stewart was born in Greenup County, Kentucky, and grew up on the Kentucky-Ohio border. After earning a degree from Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee, he returned home and worked as a teacher, then principal, and then superintendent in the local school system. After marrying in 1939, he left education to make a career from writing and public speaking. He found success in writing short stories, poems, novels, and children's books. His works appeared in national magazines such as the Atlantic Monthly and Esquire, and he was named the Poet Laureate of Kentucky in 1954. He basically wrote about himself, his family, and the world around him there in this little valley in eastern Kentucky, said Jim Gifford, CEO of the Jesse Stewart Foundation. Stewart knew about the hill culture of eastern Kentucky. He knew about people who eked a living out of poor dirt farms. He knew about people who mined coal and people who worked in the timber industry, and people who worked tirelessly to feed their families from the produce of their farms and fields. Stewart gave attention to the drama and passions of an area usually ignored in literary life. Public interest in his writings has waxed and waned since the foundation began its work. When Gifford joined the foundation 33 years ago, they had brisk, consistent sales to schools and libraries, teaching children in Kentucky about their state's history and culture. But that has declined in the last 10 years, Gifford said. School budgets for local writers have been trimmed, and book fairs in other states are less interested in Kentucky-focused literature. Homeschool programs in western states, such as Utah, though, have found a connection to Stewart. Gifford said that the connection comes from an overlap in western ranch life and Kentucky farm life. People around the country still find a satisfaction in these books that describe people who were subsistence farmers who made a living from their farms and fields, hunting and fishing. People who didn't have to buy everything they ate at the grocery store, he said. That interest hints at a divided audience. Stewart's books for children still sell, but interest for his other books skip a generation or two. I think what appeals to a lot of readers today, Gifford said, is the fact that many people who buy our books and are interested in this are older people who still remember the life that Stewart wrote about. And it may not be about their life exactly, but it was about their father's life or their grandfather's life. The Foundation's work, then, provides a crucial link to history. It helps readers understand where they came from and the circumstances of their family. But it's lonely work. 
We're the only press that produces Appalachian regional literature exclusively, Gifford said. The University of Kentucky got on the bandwagon for a while, but publishes less now. Other university presses, such as Ohio University and the Universities of Tennessee and Illinois, publish Appalachian literature, but this is a small fraction of their catalog. The poet Jim Wayne Miller argued in a 1993 essay that, like American literature and Southern literature, of which it is a part, Appalachian literature has been recognized late and often grudgingly. Into the 1950s, Miller noted, students struggled to find an English department that would approve a dissertation about Appalachian literature. Appalachian studies departments, or Appalachian-focused professors, now have a decades-long history at many American universities, but in popular culture it remains a niche interest. Appalachian literature seems to have a popular breakthrough once every decade or so, as in Homer Hickam's Rocket Boys and its film adaptation, October Sky, Charles Frazier's Cold Mountain, also made into a film, or J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. But they tend to be memoirs rather than novels. The personal experiences of writers from the region can find national success, but so far, Appalachian writers typically remain a niche interest. That doesn't mean Appalachian nonfiction and fiction can't find an audience, though. One powerful pull for readers is nostalgia and remembering life before a period of rapid change. A lot of our regional authors help people remember a way of life that is rapidly disappearing, Gifford said. In a way, our books are a way of tying people to the simplicity and hard work and solid values of an agrarian past. Whether the children and grandchildren of our current readers will sustain their interest remains an open question, but some signs give hope. Millennials read more than older Americans, according to a 2016 report from Pew Research Center, and college graduates read more than non-graduates. Additionally, more authors reach the New York Times bestseller list each year than in the past, and they stay on it for shorter periods. What these changes mean is that the reading landscape could be more decentralized and varied if trends continue. Even if Appalachian literature can't grab national interest, older readers and bookstores like the Jesse Stewart Foundation could pass along their passion for regional literature and keep it alive. Another bright sign of change is internet sales. Online orders help the foundation reach a national audience. Our e-commerce is the lifeblood of our revenue stream, Gifford said. The foundation and other regional booksellers then have a chance to persuade would-be readers about the value of a book that focuses on life in their own backyard. And for readers already interested in regional literature, the Jesse Stewart Foundation gives them a local hero and a long reading list. He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. From the website, allthatsinteresting.com, Black Shuck, the mythic hellhound of medieval England, said to portend your death. The story is by William DeLong. People in Bungie, England know all too well what the Black Shuck can do. One town legend from 1577 says this giant hellhound killed two people who were kneeling in prayer after knocking down the church doors amid a flash of lightning. 
The ghostly apparition then traveled 12 miles away to Blithburg Church, the stories say, where it killed two more people. Clearly, Cujo and the rest of the world's most fearsome canines have nothing on the mythical black shuck. The first known written text describing a black shuck from the Old English scucka or devil in England goes back to 1127 in the town of Peterborough. Immediately after the arrival of Abbot Henry of Poitou to the Abbey of Peterborough, there was quite a ruckus. It was the Sunday when they sing Exerge Quare Odee. Many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge, and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. This was seen in the very deer park of the town of Peterborough, and in all the woods that stretch from that same town to Stamford, and in the night the monks heard them sounding and winding their horns. Witnesses said that around 20 to 30 of these hellish beings stayed in the area through Lent all the way to Easter, a period of about 50 days. The events of 1127 are known as the Wild Hunt. It's not just an English phenomenon. Stories from across Central, Western, and Northern Europe recount loud, wild hunts throughout untamed lands, and they help explain the mythological underpinnings of the Black Shuck. Northern cultures associated wild hunts with the change of the seasons from fall to winter, probably because strong, cold winds came blowing over the landscape and forced people indoors. Anyone who didn't make it inside during the winter could freeze to death, Interpreting howling winds as a pack of hunters would thus make sense. People were mythologizing their surroundings as a way to warn people to stay indoors. Winds aren't nearly as scary as a pack of rabid dogs on the hunt, but the outcome could be the same. If someone didn't flee from the black shuck, they could be killed. Particularly in England, when winds would come in howling from the sea, there were stories of black hellhounds in more than a dozen areas. These include Suffolk, Norfolk, East Anglia, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Staffordshire, Lincolnshire, and Leicestershire. Anyone who saw a black shuck described a large dog with black mangy fur. These dogs would supposedly be larger than normal, with some even as big as a horse. They were foaming at the mouth as if deranged, rabid, or ravenously focused on hunting for their next meal. According to one description published in 1901, he takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, footfalls make no sound. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is even said that to meet him is to be warned that your death will occur before the end of the year, so you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear him howling. Shut them even if you are uncertain whether it is the dog fiend or the voice of the wind you hear. You may perhaps doubt his existence, and like other learned folks, tell us that his story is nothing but the old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin brought to us by the Vikings. And in addition to the above, perhaps the most distinctive characteristic of the Black Shuck was its eyes, red and big as saucers. Furthermore, these hellhounds were always said to appear suddenly and without warning, then disappear as quickly as they'd arrived. And if you did catch a glimpse of one, it was believed to be either a protective spirit or a portent of death, a family guardian watching over everyone, or a warning of certain doom. No wonder people feared the black shuck. 
Of course, the black shuck was scary because of more than just its appearance. Stories of the creature in action reveal the true depths of its terror. In the most famous story of a black shuck appearance, Reverend Abraham Fleming of Bungay, modern-day Suffolk, wrote a terrifying account of a hellhound's attack on the church in 1577 in his essay, A Strange and Terrible Wonder. This black dog, or the devil, in such a linenous, God he knoweth all, who worketh all, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste among the people, in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees, and occupied in prayer, as it seemed, wrung the necks of them at both, at one instant, clean backward, in so much that even at a moment where they kneeled, they strangely died. As for accounts of more recent black shuck sightings, one man in 1905 claimed that a black dog turned into a donkey and then vanished a few heartbeats later. One four-year-old girl during World War II encountered a large black dog that walked from her window around her bed, made eye contact with those famous red eyes, and then vanished before reaching the door. She didn't sleep well that night. A ten-year-old boy wrote in 1974 about an encounter he'd had when he was six. He said he saw a black animal with yellow eyes galloping towards him in the night. After he screamed for his mother, she said it was merely a reflection of a car's headlights from outside his window. The boy read a story about a haunted council house and a black dog spirit, and then he became convinced that his original account of a giant black dog was, in fact, the truth. In actuality, sightings of hellhounds or other demonic figures and acts are often inspired by fearsome weather phenomena. For example, the sightings in Bungie are often attributed to massive thunderstorms that caused buildings to collapse. Lightning strikes might burn wooden structures or at least cause a few stones to fall from stone churches, which could be seen as the devil's work. During the Black Shuck sighting in Blythburg in 1577, the steeple at Holy Trinity Church collapsed one night in a terrible storm. There were also scorch marks left on the north door. They're still there today. Rather than take the storm simply as a storm, some saw the destruction and resulting deaths of two people as the work of the devil. As for the devil's work, some believe that the reported black shuck sighting surrounding the steeple collapse in Blythburg spread so much and stuck in people's minds because of the reformation that was sweeping through Europe at the time. The Catholic Church may have been trying to scare people into staying with their church. Additionally, stories of scary black dogs could have also spread as a way to teach lessons. Parents may have used stories of the black shuck to keep kids out of certain rooms in the house, or to stay away from strange dogs, for example. News of a giant dog skeleton unearthed near an abbey in Lyston in 2013 gave the legend of the black shuck new life in the present day. Nevertheless, experts believe it was a Great Dane, one of the largest dog breeds in the world. And in the end, perhaps that's all a black shuck ever really was. Just a massive dog... Irish Wolfhounds, St. Bernards, Mastiffs, Newfoundlands, and Great Pyrenees are just a few of the dogs that grow to enormous sizes, big enough to inspire exaggerated myths about hellhounds the size of horses, myths that survive for hundreds of years.
for Texas, T for Tennessee, T for Selma, that gal that made a wreck out of me. Some publicity stunts can be complete train wrecks. Like that one time in 1613 when a real cannon was used to spice up the production of Shakespeare's Henry VIII, causing the entire Globe Theater to burn to the ground. Or that time when the U.S. Department of Defense decided to fly a Boeing 747 real low over Manhattan for a photo shoot, causing thousands of New Yorkers to nearly die of heart attack. Then there are train wrecks that are publicity stunts. This story is from AmusingPlanet.com. The Great Texas Train Crash at Crush From the late 1800s to the early 1900s, staged collisions between trains coming from opposing directions were smashing hits in state fairs across the United States, drawing crowds in tens of thousands. One Joseph S. Connolly from Iowa made a career out of it. Between 1896 and 1932, Head-On Joe successfully staged as many as 73 train wrecks at fairgrounds and other events across the nation, mostly in the Midwest. Connolly's violent spectacles were so safe that in his nearly four-decade-long career, he never had anyone injured in the collisions. The same cannot be said for William George Crush, the marketing manager of the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railway. The Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railway, commonly referred to as the Katy Line, was one of the first railroads to reach Texas in 1872. Once there, it began to spread its iron tentacles acquiring other small railroads in the process, while extending its reach to Dallas in 1886, Waco in 1888, Houston in 1893, and to San Antonio in 1901. As the railroad expanded, the Katy replaced its 30-ton steam engines with newer, more powerful 60-ton engines, leading to a stockpile of the older units, for which the railroad now had no use. In 1896, a Katy agent named William Crush proposed a publicity stunt that could help drum up some business. Only months earlier, the Columbus and Hawkin Valley Railroad had staged a locomotive crash in Lancaster, Ohio, and it had been a huge success. Crush believed that if Katie could stage a similar spectacle, the publicity that the event would attract would surely help Katie gain a strong foothold in the region. Crush managed to win the confidence of his superiors, and the project was given a go-ahead. A location was chosen in McLennan County, Texas, about 15 miles north of Waco, near one of Katie's main lines. In a small valley formed by the three hills, four miles of track were laid, and a grandstand was set up for spectators. Two wells were drilled to pump water, and a large tent, borrowed from the Ringling Brothers Circus, was set up to serve food. The place was given the temporary name of Crush. On September 15, 1896, the day of the event, some 40,000 spectators poured in from all around Texas in special excursion trains arranged by Katie for the price of $2 for a round-trip ticket. To keep people entertained as they waited for the main event, a carnival midway sprang up with medicine shows, game booths, lemonade stands, and cigar stands. Some 300 policemen had to be brought in to keep order. With spectators still arriving by train, the event that was to start at 4 p.m. eventually got delayed by an hour. At 5 p.m., the two trains, 
each comprising of an obsolete 35-ton steam engine pulling six boxcars and plastered with advertisement, were pulled together to have their pictures taken. Crush himself appeared before the crowd riding a white horse and waving his hat like a seasoned performer. When all was ready, the two locomotives slowly backed up to their starting point. Katie's engine crews had precisely calculated the exact point of collision, and as the crowd gathered that day, the crew went through their checks a dozen times. To prevent the boxcars from coming apart during the impact, the cars were chained together instead of coupled with a link and pin. Crush was concerned about the boilers exploding during impact, but Katie's engineers assured him that the boilers were designed to resist ruptures, even in a very high-speed crash. Crush still insisted that the crowd be kept back by at least 200 yards, with the exception of the press who were allowed within 100 yards so that photographs could be taken. On Crush's signal, the crews and the locomotives threw the throttles to full and jumped out. As the two engines, one painted green and the other red, approached, they picked up speed and in less than two minutes met at the designated spot in a violent crash. It was estimated that each train was going at about 45 miles per hour at the moment of impact. A Dallas Morning News reporter gave a poetic description of the event. The rumble of the two trains, faint and far off at first, but growing nearer and more distinct with each fleeting second, was like the gathering force of a cyclone. Nearer and nearer they came, the whistles of each blowing repeatedly and the torpedoes which had been placed on the track exploding in almost a continuous round like the rattle of musketry. But then something unexpected happened. The report continued. A crash, a sound of timbers rent and torn, and then a shower of splinters. There was just a swift instance of silence, and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel varying in size from a postage stamp to half of a driving wheel. Flying metal debris killed two young men and women. An official photographer lost an eye to a steel bolt. Six people were seriously injured while numerous more suffered shrapnel wounds and burns from scalding water erupting from the boilers. Despite the injuries and shock of it, the crowd still rushed forward and swarmed over the wreckage to find souvenirs. William Crush was fired that very evening, but rehired the next day. Rumor has it that he got a bonus for all the attention he brought the railroad. He worked for the company for 57 years until his retirement. Curiously, the tragedy didn't spell the end of fares crashing locomotives for entertainment. On the contrary, it started it. For the next three decades, more than a hundred crashes were orchestrated at state fairs across the United States. Train wrecks appealed to the more primitive side of man, the thrill of seeing something destroyed, Reisdorf said in his book on Joseph Connolly, the most proficient train wrecker in history. Nowadays, people go to demolition derbies. The demonic haunting and possession of Latoya Ammons and her family will go down in history as one of the best documented and most widely witnessed demonic possessions in history. With over 800 pages of official documentation and dozens of first-person accounts from reliable eyewitnesses, including police officers, a police captain, Department of Child Services officials, 
security guards, ministers, psychologists, and a Catholic priest. Many consider the case to be one of the best examples of demonic possession to date. From the website altereddimensions.net The Ammons Family Demonic Possession and Exorcism Home Described as a Portal to Hell The series of strange events began in December 2011, one month after the Ammons family, Mother Latoya Ammons, Grandmother Rosa Campbell, and their three young children moved into their new home on Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. It was shortly after moving into the home when the family suspected something unusual was afoot. In the dead of winter, their house became infested with flies. Soon after, they began to hear footsteps climbing the basement stairs, followed by the loud opening and closing of doors throughout the house. The family's grandmother, Rosa Campbell, told investigators that she awoke one night to find a ghostly figure of a man pacing in their living room. When she ran into the room to confront the man, she found nothing but an empty area and a set of wet footprints leading across the room. When the Ammons family began to find an odd, gooey substance dripping from windows, doorways, and furniture throughout the house, they began to suspect a demonic presence had invaded their home. By March 2012, just three months after moving into the new home, the demonic entity became bolder. One evening in March, Latoya Ammons and her mother Rosa heard the children screaming from within the bedroom. When they rushed into the room, they found their 12-year-old daughter unconscious and floating in the air above the bed. When the young girl awoke, she had no recollection of the event and appeared bewildered when told that she had levitated. Terrified and confused, the family sought help from a local minister who suggested they purge the home with bleach and ammonia and cross every door and window with olive oil. Still, the demonic presence continued its escapades, banging furniture throughout the house and tormenting the young children. The family next sought help from two clairvoyants who examined the home and told the family that their home was being besieged by at least 200 different demonic entities. At the advice of the clairvoyants, the family built a small altar in the basement on which they placed incense and figures of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus alongside an open Bible. For three days, they attempted to cleanse the home with burning sage and sulfur. Alas, the problem only grew worse. All three of Latoya's children, ages 7, 9, and 12, names withheld to protect their identities, began to speak with grainy, deepened voices. Their eyes began to bulge from their heads, and from all appearances, the children were not who they appeared to be. According to a news report from the local Indie Star, The youngest boy, then seven, sat in a closet talking to a boy that no one else could see. The other boy was describing what it felt like to be killed. Rosa Campbell said the seven-year-old once flew out of the bathroom as if he'd been thrown, and a headboard once smacked into Ammon's daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. The twelve-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that she sometimes felt as if she were being choked and held down so she couldn't speak or move. She said she heard a voice say she'd never see her family again and wouldn't live another 20 minutes. Some nights were so bad the family slept at a hotel. As the pace of torment accelerated, the terrified children were thrown against furniture, dragged around the room, and punched until their gums and noses bled. 
One child was struck so hard she was taken to the emergency room where she received stitches in her head. By April of 2012, the family physician, Dr. Jeffrey Aniakwu, was called to assist. Bound by law to protect the privacy of his patients, Dr. Aniakwu would not reveal details about the case but admitted to police and reporters that he himself felt terrified when he walked through the house. Meanwhile, after noticing an increase in the number of days the children were absent from school, the Indiana Department of Child Services was called to investigate the household. According to their report, the children spoke in demonic voices and medical staff witnessed the youngest boy being lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him. When one child lost consciousness, emergency services were called and the children were rushed to a local hospital where, according to DHS reports, the children were healthy and free of marks or bruises, and Ammons was evaluated and determined she was of sound mind. By the time their investigation was completed, at least two caseworkers would quit and another would refuse to ever re-enter the Ammons house. According to the original Department of Child Services report filed by caseworker Valerie Washington and hospital nurse Willie Lee Walker while visiting the family during the investigation, the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling. He then flipped over the grandmother, landing on his feet. He never let go of his grandmother's hand. When the police asked the DCS caseworker if the boy had run up the wall like an acrobatic stunt, she said no. The boy glided backward on the floor, wall, and ceiling. Fearing for the safety of the children, the DCS immediately took custody of the three children. With all options exhausted, Catholic priest Rev. Michael Maginot of St. Stephen Martyr Parish in Merrillville, Indiana, was called to act as a representative of the Catholic Church and evaluate the situation. According to Maginot, as he began his investigation, he was skeptical of the family's claims. I set out to disprove it, because to be honest, I didn't want to get the bishop involved. But I had policemen, social workers, doctors, and security guards telling me what they had witnessed. Magano visited with Latoya and her mother Rosa at the home. During his visit, he noticed a light flickering in the bathroom. Each time he stood and walked to investigate the light, it would brighten and burn normally. When he walked away, it would begin flickering again. Magano also noted seeing the window blinds swing and twist in the air and witnessed wet footprints mysteriously appear in the living room. His conclusion was that indeed the home was infested with demons and suggested that the family flee the home immediately. They did. Days later, Latoya was called back to the home in order to allow DCS to enter and examine the house to ensure it was safe for the children to return to. Accompanied by two police officers, they made a walkthrough of the home. One of the officers later admitted that prior to that day, he had not believed in demons. His visit to the Ammons home changed his mind. According to police records, during the DCS walkthrough, the police officers' audio recorders began to malfunction. Lights flickered, and a photo taken by the police officers show a pale, shadowy figure looking through a window. A second photo revealed a ghostly green figure that appeared to be a woman. 36-year-old police veteran Charles Austin noted that when he returned to the car, the radio screeched, You are out of here, followed by static and then silence. As he drove away, the electric seats of his car began moving forward and backward on their own. 
With no explanation for the family's bizarre claims, the police began to wonder if possibly a previous crime had been committed inside the home and the family was attempting to cover it up. The men dug up the dirt under the stairs. The remainder of the basement floor was concrete and unearthed a bizarre collection of objects, including boys' socks with the ankle portion cut out, a torn fingernail, and women's panties. After the walkthrough of the home, the children were kept in DCS custody, and eventually two of the children were moved to homes while the third was held for psychiatric evaluation. Not having witnessed the events at the home in person, hospital psychiatrists concluded that the boy was perfectly healthy, but suggested that the things he reported seeing were manifested in his head. The remainder of the family were examined, and psychiatrists determined that they did not seem to be experiencing symptoms of psychosis or thought disorder. DCS continued their investigation and returned to the home with additional personnel, including DCS family case manager Samantha Illick, who was called in to replace the previous caseworker who adamantly refused to return to the house. DCS records show that during the investigation, Illick discovered a sticky, strange substance dripping in the basement. After an hour in the home, she began to feel sick, and the fingers that she had touched the strange substance with began tingling. Photographs of her hand show blister-like damage to her fingers. Soon, she felt she was being suffocated and quickly left the home to stand outside until the police officers finished their investigation. Meanwhile, police officers also found an unidentifiable, sticky liquid dripping from the window frames and blinds inside the home. They cleaned the blinds and sealed the room for 30 minutes. When they returned, the blinds were once again covered in the strange substance. That same day, Reverend Magino performed an unofficial exorcism on Latoya Ammons. The ritual consisted of prayers, statements, and appeals to cast out demons. Two police officers and Illick, the DCS family case manager, witnessed the exorcism ritual. Reverend Magino recalled that as he completed the exorcism, the rosary he had used mysteriously shattered into pieces. He later told reporters that after the destruction of the rosary, he felt fairly certain the ritual had failed and the demons were still afoot inside the home. After the exorcism, DCS caseworker Samantha Illick returned home where within a week she suffered third-degree burns on her arms and hands. Mysterious injuries to her body continued thereafter, and within the month after her visit to the Ammons home, she broke three ribs while jet skiing, broke a hand walking past a table, and broke an ankle while running. After evidence and testimony were provided to Catholic authorities, a rare grant of permission for an exorcism was granted by Bishop Melzick. Reverend Magano conducted a second exorcism on Latoya Ammons, this time sanctioned by the church and performed in Latin while in the presence of two police officers. Pressing a crucifix to her head, he chanted, I cast you out, unclean spirit, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all your fell companions, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon finishing the exorcism, Reverend Magano blessed the home and sealed the basement with salt. By November 2012, Latoya regained custody of her children, and to date, the family has experienced no unusual events. When police captain Charles Austin was later asked what he felt about the case, he said, Every one of us who were there that day in the basement and who saw what we saw went through what we went through. We all think the same. We all call it the same. 
that bit of dirt is a portal to hell. Paranormal investigator and TV veteran Zach Bagans from the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures series has purchased the Ammons house with the intention of living there himself and documenting what he experiences. If it's true this home is a portal to hell, then I want to go there and see what happens, he said. There are several ways these birds could maim me. They could slam into me, pummeling me to the ground and knocking me unconscious. They could pierce their lethal talons through the thick leather glove on my wrist or crush my arm with one squeeze. And they could always scratch or peck my flesh, leaving me a bloody, shredded mess. These are among the warnings Martin Whitley gives me throughout my first ever lesson in horseback falconry. Are you feeling brave, he asks, holding a golden eagle as I sit atop one of his horses, a retired racehorse named Caymans. Caymans, too, could do some damage. If he spooks, I'm in for the fastest ride of my life, thundering toward the moors before anyone can stop us. If I fall, I'll have only a few seconds to contemplate my fate before smashing into the ground. But Caymans remains still. I extend my arm, allowing Martin to place the eagle on my wrist. This is a story from atlasobscura.com, Learning the Ancient Art of Horseback Falconry, by Carrie Wolf. Flying an eagle while sitting on a horse isn't something I get to do every day. I've traveled to Dartmoor National Park in southern England for what in all likelihood will be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Whitley's Dartmoor Hawking is one of the few places on earth where equestrians can still learn an ancient sport, mounted falconry or flying birds of prey from horseback. I've ridden horses since I was seven and have had my own horse for the last 12 years. I spend so much time around horses that I often feel more at home at a stable than in a human's house. But my experience with birds doesn't stretch far beyond rescuing the occasional sparrow from my favorite barn cat's mouth. As eager as I am to try something new, participating in a sport that centers around death makes me uneasy. I'm the kind of vegetarian who can't even stomach killing a mouse that wanders into my apartment, so the thought of using an animal to take down another animal makes me decidedly uncomfortable. But this particular falconry class doesn't involve hunting. It's a crash course on the basics, a chance to learn the mechanics of the sport without using the birds for their true purpose. It's also a chance to get unusually close to magnificent raptors and to learn a new equestrian skill. Until recently, taking a horseback falconry class wasn't something I'd been aware a person could do. I've never tried any type of falconry before today, though it turns out I've been exposed to it in a variety of ways without realizing it. Words and phrases associated with falconry have shaped the English language. Common idioms, such as to be under someone's thumb or wrapped around their finger, originally referred to how a falconer secures a bird before setting it off to fly. William Shakespeare, an amateur falconer himself, peppered his plays with hawking jargon, references to hoodwinking to cover a bird's head with a hood, and rousing when a bird shakes its feathers as a sign of contentment appear throughout his work. Of course, falconry existed long before Shakespeare's time. There's good evidence humans have been using birds to hunt since prehistory, upwards of 12,000 years ago. Originally, it was not a sport, but a means of acquiring food, even if it was typically reserved for nobility. 
By the Middle Ages, the practice was so popular across Europe that even peasants had their own hunting birds, though their social class still dictated exactly which species they were permitted to keep. Wealthier medieval falconers often rode horses during their hunts, as the animal's speed and endurance meant they could cover more ground at a faster pace. It wasn't until the 19th century that European interest in the sport waned. Hunters traded in their feathered companions for firearms, and the French Revolution brought about a decline in traditionally aristocratic activities. It took a century for interest in falconry to pick up again. Today, there are at least 10,000 falconers throughout the world, and most of them hunt for pleasure rather than survival. The sport is strictly regulated, and the birds are often used for more than just hunting. Some are put to work as pest control, particularly for farmers, while others are trained for military purposes. Despite falconry's modest resurgence, flying a raptor while riding a horse remains all but obsolete. Horses are still used in falconry in parts of Central Asia. Watching mounted hunters fly golden eagles is a highlight of Mongolia's Golden Eagle Festival, but even there, the tradition is at risk of disappearing. To have the chance to sit atop one of the most powerful prey animals while an apex predator with a wingspan the size of a grown man clenches your wrist with its talons is a rare opportunity, to say the least. And in the Western Hemisphere, Dartmoor Hawking is the place to do it. We move through the barn, where horses crane their heads over doors, birds shriek, and dogs frolic about. Whitley talks to the animals as we pass, greeting his horses and telling the birds and dogs to hush, like a parent scolding his rowdy children. He is, in a way, their parent. Each of his raptors was bred in captivity, since British falconers can only work with captive-bred birds. He usually acquires his birds when they're young, around the time their bird mother would begin teaching them to hunt. His falconry horses, meanwhile, have had previous owners and trainers. They're all thoroughbreds, and not just any thoroughbreds, but retired racehorses. Dartmoor's a really wild place. It's really tough going, he says. I want a horse that's quick on its feet, because if I'm watching a flight, I don't want to be placing my horse's feet on the ground. Whitley first began flying hawks from horses in 2001, and after taking a break from riding, picked the sport back up in 2013, before opening Dartmoor Hawking with his wife Philippa in 2015. Their main business is falconry demonstrations and lessons, which they offer from a scenic piece of land atop a hill on the Bovee Castle Estate. The wet, wild moors of Dartmoor National Park are just over the ridge, which is where Whitley takes his horses, birds, and dogs when he goes hunting. We head to the way station near the barn's back door. Martin places each bird on the scale before I fly them. Too thin and hungry, and they won't be healthy enough to fly. Too fat and full, and they won't have the motivation to hunt. I won't be hunting with them, though. I'm here to fly them, to learn to hold and release them. Rather than racing through the sky in search of prey, the birds will be passing between me and a wooden perch. The first bird I meet is Merlin, an 18-year-old, 4.5-pound Eurasian eagle owl. Martin places him on my gloved arm and weaves his jessies, thin leather straps, between my fingers, instructing me to move with Merlin as though I'm carrying my favorite drink. I walk in a haphazard figure eight, my upper arm clasped to my ribcage and my forearm extended at a 90-degree angle. Merlin rests on my arm like a feathered growth, his head bobbing and swiveling as I move. And though his eyes, two fiery, burnt-orange saucers, remain wide in a way that makes him seem surprised, he's actually content. 
He rouses, briefly ruffling his feathers before settling again into stillness. Next, I fly Charlie, a five-year-old, three-and-a-half-pound, ferruginous hawk. He soars between me, Martin, and a perch, landing at each spot with ease. With Harold, a 15-week-old, nine-ounce falcon, I continue getting comfortable handling birds, placing my fingers near their talons to secure their jessies, and sticking my hands near their faces to remove their hoods. After a morning filled with what Martin refers to as the boring part, it's time to move on to the highlight of the day. At lunch, I learn I won't be riding Tommy, Dartmoor Hawkins' calmest, most used falconry horse. Because I've done so well with the birds, I get to ride Caymans. Before his falconry career, Caymans, a 13-year-old, 17-hand gelding, raced in Australia, Dubai, and the United Kingdom, earning more than 200,000 pounds. He was forced to retire after losing his right eye to an infection. Though he may no longer race, he still looks like an athlete. His clipped bay coat hugs his muscles like a tight t-shirt. Don, a four-year-old, two-pound falcon, is the first bird I fly while on Caymans. We walk around the yard, Don sitting on my arm as I steer Caymans with one hand. Caymans fidgets, shaking his head, but soon slows his pace. It's easy to imagine I'm some kind of medieval huntress in training, learning to handle these two beasts before taking to the moors for a high-speed, exhilarating hunt. I take off Don's hood, trusting Caymans to stand still while I use my right hand, the hand I've been holding the reins with, to slip the cover off the bird's head and let her take flight. Caymans doesn't flinch as a blur of feathers streaks by. He's so used to this. I've done well enough with Don that there's time for a big finale, a chance to fly a golden eagle. Floki, like me, is new to mounted falconry. Martin only got him ten days before my class. Most of Whitley's students fly Artemis, an 11-pound female golden eagle, but at this point, my arm is tired, so I opt for the smaller bird. Floki has never been flown from the back of a horse before, and Martin warns me there are no guarantees things will turn out well. My right hand fumbles near Floki's head until finally my fingers clutch his hood and slide it off his face, making brief eye contact with an eagle, a creature that can spot rabbit-sized prey over a mile away, is, as someone who struggles to recognize my co-workers without my glasses on, humbling. Floki shifts on my wrists as I raise my arm to the side, his cue to launch. He stretches his wings, revealing a six-foot wingspan. His feathers crash into my face in a flurry of softness and strength. As Floki prepares for takeoff, his right wing drapes across my upper back. I'm not that much of a hugger, but this is an embrace I can get excited about. And then he's off flapping his great wings in a whoosh of power, swooping mere feet above the earth. I fly Floki a few more times, aiming him toward the perch for our final round, a milestone Martin had been working toward. Martin and Philippa cheer as his outstretched talons clasp the wood. Caymans stands beneath me, solid and steady, each time the eagle launches from my aching arm. It's an incredible dynamic, that of a horse, rider, and bird, it is, as Martin says, a simple relationship, but also a complicated one. The horse, human, and bird must all trust one another, a kind of familiarity that takes patience and understanding to build. I thought the birds might be wary of a stranger, but somehow we managed to work as a team. It feels a bit like being the filling in some kind of racing animal sandwich. Below me, a horse bred and trained to run fast, 
and on me, a bird evolutionarily engineered to speed through the sky, all three of us relying on one another for a sense of security. As Martin later tells me, that's the whole point of this class, to understand the relationship between you and the animals. It's something unique, he says, because very few people are doing it. Okay, small announcement here before we get to the last story. Um, I've been working on promoting the show a few different ways, and so I'm going to try another way here. Uh, Personally, I am not very comfortable with asking my listeners for things, so I'm going to make you all a deal. If you like the show, do one of these two things. Tell at least two other people. Tell people on Twitter. We've got a Twitter handle, at Curseland. Or leave a review in iTunes saying you like the show. Now, I know I don't care for it when shows do this either, and we definitely already know that it does not improve the show's rankings in the iTunes charts. I just would like the people that visit that page to see something other than no reviews yet, so they can know that this is an active, current podcast. Now, if you don't like the show, I'm awfully glad you made it this far in. That's very big of you. Uh, But you can send an email to feedback at curse.land. So far, I've only got nice messages at that address, but... If you want to hear some improvements, I'd be glad to listen. I read every email I get regardless. Now let's get on with the show. Now a story from Appalachian Magazine. The Republic of Franklin. Appalachia's lost country. In the days following the American Revolution, United States found themselves deeply in debt from the heavy price of conducting a full-out military war with the British Empire. Though the states had successfully secured their political independence, the economic burden felt in the 13 state houses scattered along the East Coast made many question whether the struggling nation would make it out of infancy. In an effort to help the struggling nation repay war debts, the state of North Carolina voted to give Congress the 29 million acres lying between the Allegheny Mountains, as the entire Appalachian Range was then called, and the Mississippi River in April 1784. In essence, the Tar Heel State agreed to give the United States Congress all of what would become the state of Tennessee, back then known simply as North Carolina's Washington District. Carolina leaders may not have been totally pure in their motivations, however, as the vast expanse of land was proven too costly for the state to govern. Though the British had prohibited Indian settlements east of the Appalachians and white settlements west of the mountain range, an estimated 30,000 settlers had already moved into this area by 1784, and frequent skirmishes with local Indian tribes was becoming all too frequent for the Carolina government. According to historian John A. Caruso, these developments were not welcomed by the frontiersmen, who had pushed even further westward, gaining a foothold on the western Cumberland River at Fort Nashboro now Nashville, or the Overmountain men, many of whom had settled in the area during the days of the old Watauga Republic. Inhabitants of the region feared that the cash-starved Federal Congress might even be desperate enough to sell the frontier territory to a competing foreign power such as France or Spain. Within a matter of months, a newly elected North Carolina legislature opted to ungift the expanse of land to the Congress, choosing instead to develop the land as marketable real estate on a vast scale. In his book, History of Western North Carolina, John Preston writes, The North Carolina lawmakers ordered the judges to hold court in the western counties and arranged to enroll a brigade of soldiers for defense 
appointing John Sevier to form it. Unfortunately for the settlers of what would eventually become Tennessee, the state of North Carolina simply lacked the resources to administer such a vast territory, and Western pioneers quickly grew critical of the state government hundreds of miles to their east. Feeling that his government in Richmond had neglected to protect his community too, Washington County, Virginia, far southwestern Virginia, resident Arthur Campbell presented a plan to John Sevier. Form an entirely new nation-state along the mountain and valley of the Appalachians. Word of the idea quickly spread among the over-mountain towns until it eventually reached the desk of Virginia Governor Patrick Henry. Angered by the idea, Henry prompted the state's General Assembly to pass a law which forbade anyone from attempting to create a new territory in the Commonwealth. Unable to include Virginia in their plan, Campbell and Sevier pressed forward with their attempts to create a new state out of North Carolina's western frontier. They selected to call their new state the State of Franklin in an attempt to solicit support from Benjamin Franklin. The State of Franklin movement had little success on the Kentucky frontier as settlers there wanted their own state, which they achieved in 1792. On August 23, 1784, delegates from the North Carolina counties of Washington, which at the time included present-day Carter County, Sullivan, Spencer, now Hawkins County, and Green, all of which are in present-day Tennessee, convened in the town of Jonesboro. There, they declared the lands to be independent of the state of North Carolina. Leaders were duly elected. John Sevier reluctantly became governor. The delegates were called to a constitutional convention held at Jonesboro in December of that year. They drafted a constitution that excluded lawyers, doctors, and preachers as candidates for election to the legislature. The constitution was defeated in referendum. Afterward, the area continued to operate under tenants of the North Carolina state constitution. The following May, a delegation submitted a petition for statehood to Congress. Eventually, seven states voted to admit what would have been the 14th federal state under the proposed name of Franklin. This was, however, less than the two-thirds majority required under the Articles of Confederation to add additional states to the Confederation. The following month, the Franklin government convened to address their options. In an attempt to curry favor for their cause, Sevier tried to persuade Franklin to support their cause by letter, but he declined, writing, I am sensible to the honor which your excellency and your council thereby do me. But being in Europe when your state was formed, I am too little acquainted with the circumstances to be able to offer you anything just now that may be of importance, since everything material that regards your welfare will doubtless have occurred to yourselves. I will endeavor to inform myself more perfectly of your affairs by inquiry and searching the records of Congress, and if anything should occur to me that I think may be useful to you, you shall hear from me thereupon. Benjamin Franklin, Letter to Governor John Sevier, 1787 Still upset with North Carolina over taxation, protection, and other issues, leaders in Franklin began operating as a de facto independent national republic after the failed statehood attempt. Greenville was declared the new capital. The first legislature met in Greenville in December 1785. The delegates adopted a permanent constitution known as the Holston Constitution, which was modeled closely upon that of North Carolina. John Sevier also proposed to commission a Franklin state flag, but it was never designed. Franklin opened courts, incorporated and annexed five new counties, 
and fixed taxes and officers' salaries. The Republic's primary currency was barter with anything in common use among the people allowed in payment to settle debts, including corn, tobacco, apple brandy, and skins. Severe was often paid in deer hides. Federal or foreign currencies were accepted. All citizens were granted a two-year reprieve on paying taxes, but the lack of hard currency and economic infrastructure slowed development and often created confusion. By 1786, the tiny Appalachian state was nearing its final demise. Because they were claiming to be an independent republic, neither the Federal Army or the North Carolina militia served to protect the settlers from increasing Indian attacks. In late 1786, North Carolina offered to waive all back taxes if Franklin would reunite with its government. When this offer was popularly rejected in 1787, North Carolina moved in with troops under the leadership of Colonel John Tipton and reestablished its own courts, jails, and government at Jonesboro. The September 1787 meeting of the Franklin legislature, however, was its last. At the end of 1787, loyalties were divided among the area's residents and came to a head in early February 1788. Jonathan Pugh, the North Carolina Sheriff of Washington County, was ordered by the county court to seize any property of Severe's to settle tax debts North Carolina contended was owed to them. The property seized included several slaves who were brought to Tipton's home and secured in his underground kitchen. On February 27th, Governor Severe arrived at the Tipton house, leading a force numbering more than a hundred men. During a heavy snowstorm in the early morning of February 29th, Colonel George Maxwell arrived with a force equivalent to Severe's to reinforce Tipton. After ten minutes of skirmishing, Severe and his force withdrew to Jonesboro. A number of men were captured or wounded on both sides, and three men killed. Following the battle, Severe attempted to form an alliance with the Spanish government. Opposed to any foreign nation gaining a foothold in Franklin, North Carolina officials arrested Severe in August 1788. Severe's supporters quickly freed him from the local jail and retreated to Lesser Franklin. In February 1789, Severe and the last holdouts of the lost state swore oaths of allegiance to North Carolina after turning themselves in. North Carolina sent their militia to aid in driving out the Cherokee and Chickasaw. Ultimately, however, John Sevier succeeded in seeing the mountains that he loved so dearly free from North Carolina rule. On September 23, 1803, Sevier was sworn in as the state of Tennessee's first governor. That concludes this episode of the Curse Land Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoy. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. This show is also on Twitter at curseland, no spaces, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till then, I'll talk to you all later.